0: Over my sabbatical, as I was reading the news, one phrase I kept seeing pop up again and again, especially you reading local news, was a phrase that I heard a long time ago, but recently reused, uh, doom loop. I don't know if you've seen that phrase used. Doom loop, um, talking about, especially San Francisco's downtown economy. Uh, doom loop was popularized in 2001 by the business writer, Jim Collins. That's where I first saw that phrase. In his book, Good to Great, talking about how one negative factor triggers another, and that triggers another that maybe worsens the first. And it just a, it's a kind of a downward spiral. One bad thing leads to another, leads to another bad thing. The SF doom loop is generally described like this Workers don't return to offices, offices remain empty, therefore leading to restaurants that shutter, that lead to transit, agencies going bankrupt, tax base plummets, public services disappear. Cell phone activity, if you look at downtown, someone, I forget, I think it's in Toronto, they're tracking a major city's cell phone uh, tower usage. Um, in San Francisco, our cell phone tower usage is 32% of what it was pre pandemic. And so it's significantly lower. And then after that bit of news, you see that during my sabbatical, Cash App founder Bob Lee's murder, downward spiral, clothes, stores close, tech leaves. Lots of discussion. As you read things about the San Francisco doom loop, lots of people try to make suggestions of how you can rectify, how you bring renewal, how you make things new again, how you create a boom in the midst of doom. And, and hopefully cities like ours experience renewal. Hopefully under good fiscal leadership, under good civil leadership, there will be renewal. There'll be a newness, and many cities experience that if you look at new york or you have friends in new york you you can see that they experience similar kinds of challenges and yet there are things going in place to reverse the doom and as things get better and we hope it does it's not guaranteed it's not always that way if you look at great cities of history there's no guarantee that a city ever lasts forever but as cities renew and grow new one thing we know about renewal, even if you see it, even in your lifetime, see newness come to a place that's experienced some downward trend, is that newness and renewal doesn't last forever in these cities. It won't. It doesn't. Scripture tells us from beginning to end that God is in the business of renewal. He's making all things new. He's seeking the renewal of the city He's seeking to renew people to the point where they're called, in this passage, new creations. God is bringing newness that doesn't just last until the next administration changes. He's about renewing. He's about newness that lasts more than just even our lifetime. It's, it's a newness that will last infinitely for eternity. That's what we're going to look at today, this kind of newness. Last week, uh, Chris led us through this motivation in Paul's ministry. he He's regularly in this letter, Second Corinthians, there's a tension going on here. In fact, that's why the reconciliation message in this text is so important. He's having a bit of tension with the church in Corinth. They're questioning his apostleship. There's some issues going on there. He's supposed to visit them and he doesn't. And he writes them this letter in tears. And it's a challenging thing. And this, he continues this idea and he's trying to explain his ministry, his heart. And he's using a phrase here in this text, uh, that One of his favorites, he uses it again and again. It's in, in Christ. It's in Christ. It's a loaded, it's a very rich idea. It's not just a theory. It's, it's a spiritual reality. It changes everything about identities. That's why he can talk about new creations. It, it changes who Paul is, how he relates to everything around him. It changes his relationship with the Lord. And I, I want to look at that three results that come from being in Christ. Three new things that come from being in Christ in his ministry. That is not just true of Paul, it's true of us. The first result from being in Christ that's new. In Christ, there is a new perspective. Look at verse 16 again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. that cheesy phrase I've said and so apologize, but not really. I like it because you will remember this. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you to need to ask what it's there for. And so it's a connective, it's a transitional phrase, and he's building upon what's said before. And so he's therefore, and he's looking back to the train of thought he began in last week in verses 14 to 15. And it's anchored in the gospel here that Christ died for sinners, that he was raised to life, that his death covers our sins, it brings us back from our own self. Obsession, our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness. Based upon this good news, Paul has a new perspective in Christ. He no longer sees people according to the flesh. His perspective on how he views culture and other people, it's changed. It's new. There's a newness there. See, the world, when you are looking at people through the world's lens, we primarily look through externals. We look through attractiveness, we look through reputation, we look through power, we look through position, What family background, natural way of looking at things. We know, even though we know this, even as Christians, this is still hard, right? We know God looks at the heart. we read scriptures like that, right? He looks at the heart. He looks at character, integrity, motives. He cares less, very little about what's external. Saul was a king chosen with the world's eyes with the fleshly perspective. David was chosen with God's perspective. Very interesting, right? God chooses the king very differently than the people of God choose a king. I was thinking about that. I was reading through that section of scripture in my sabbatical, and I, I began to see that, that this is exactly the same problem we still have today. And look at how churches, how people, how, I mean, in my own heart, how we look up to certain leaders in the Christian world. This is sadly how churches choose pastors. And we choose pastors based on the externals we get exactly what we're trying to get at. God looks at the heart, though. How do we look at others? How do we look at San Francisco? Let me let me just give a very real example of this that you will experience if you just walk around our city. In fact, everyone I tell uh, that you know I live in San Francisco that isn't from San Francisco, there's usually within the first you know, five minutes of conversation, a, a, a question or a wonder about the unhoused in our city, right, or how dirty it is and how people will comment, why would you want to live in a city with an actual San Francisco poop map? I mean, how, why would you want to live there? And they ask questions about the unhoused if they don't live here. How do we look at the unhoused in our city? When, when we look at unhoused people, what, what, what do we see dirt? poverty and shame and in part some of that is real it's there it's not something we deny but the starting point for someone in christ with a new perspective is you see someone anyone no matter their station no matter their circumstance with dignity a person made in in the image of god that's the starting point who has a name who has a story who is a son who is a daughter who is a maybe a mother there's dignity before dirt something that paul is beginning to learn especially in their world it has to do with jews and gentiles and those backgrounds but maybe in san francisco one of the things we need to get across and understand and have a new perspective is social economic differences right you you can acknowledge someone's needs and problems Without letting those needs and problems define them. And that's really hard though, isn't it? Because we tend to look primarily externals. But when you begin to have a new perspective in Christ, you begin to see others from a, a starting point of dignity, as image bearers, as beloved of God. To the this is someone who for whom Christ died for. Paul describes that he used to look at even Jesus through fleshly eyes through the world's perspective he says this in the second half of verse 16 even though we once regarded christ according to the flesh we regard him thus no longer he used to look at jesus as weak as foolish as unimpressive as a blasphemer that's why he went to go kill christians and on a way to damascus he was looking to imprison some more he oversaw the the, the, the murder the mur- of stephen on the road to Damascus, though, he begins to see Jesus for who he really is because God graciously reveals himself. And that changes his perspective of, of Jesus, of other people. He's a new perspective of others. He's a new perspective of what it means to be Christians. Right? This is not just a religious following. This a, he describes it as a new creation. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. is anchored in Old Testament promises. New creation. Powerful phrase. Isaiah the prophet says, chapter 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. He's anchoring these thoughts in that idea where the Spirit of God who is there at the beginning of creation making everything from nothing. That power that was able to create out of nothing is the same power at work when someone who is far from God sees Jesus where he is and is now brought in Christ. That same power of creation at the beginning recreates those who are in Christ into new beings. And it's completely new. A new creation. Think about, there is a new heavens and new earth to come and Christ returns and makes all things new. But it breaks through right now through his people. God's new creation power happens through his church, through his people. That's why I love baptism. It's a a declaration of that new creation power. The Holy Spirit has done that work in this person's life and we're declaring it to everyone. It's breaking through. The new creation is happening all over the place. It's happening in the sunset. It's happening in the tenderloin. It's happening, yes, even in Milbraith. Yes, even Los Angeles after this week, it's still there. The the power of God, the new creation is breaking through, through people who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, I I want you to see this newness that's throughout the New Testament. Take a look at this list of new things that happen if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, which means you have new life. You have a new heart. You have a new mind. You have a new spirit. You have new desires. You are given a new birth. You have a new covenant, not of law, but of love. You have a new identity. You have a new name. You have new hope. You have a new song. You have a new service. You have new commands. You have a new city. You have a new world. The Bible ends with Jesus saying, Behold, I am making all things new for a church that Responds with "Amen."s That would be a place to say "Amen." New. That's what new creation is for us. It's not by our work, not by our effort, not by making ourselves good. It's given to us by grace. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. You have all of those things. Now let's be careful. It doesn't mean you're instantly perfect. Doesn't mean there is not an experience of brokenness, pain, trials. But we believe that this newness that comes into those who are in Christ, it happens by grace because Jesus really has come. He really did rise from the dead. He really did ascend to heaven. He's really coming back. He loves this world. He loves our city. He loves you. It reminded me as I was reading that about the story of Augustine, who was an early church theologian in northern Africa. He didn't become a Christian until his 30s. Sometimes you read Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, and you're like, man, this guy's writing a profound thing. He's been a Christian. No, even, he lived a pretty wild life before he became a Christian. He was, I don't know how else to say it. He, he enjoyed his sexuality. He had a child at a wedlock. He was pretty crazy. Um, he became a Christian, and actually, it's written down. Uh, you read it, uh, one of his early prayers as a, as a new Christian, as he's wrestling with this newness in his life. He prayed, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet he's still you can see his oldness still there right um there's a story attributed to his life it's hard to determine if the story is fiction or not but it's you know it's interesting um it may not be true of him or not but spurgeon used it in a sermon once so at least spurgeon preached it so i can use it um augustine he experiences conversion in italy and the story goes he comes back home and he runs into an old girlfriend or old mistress and the girlfriend says to him it is i it is I tried to get his attention, like renew their relationship that they have together. And he says to her after looking at her, but it is not I. The old is gone. The new has come. See, in Christ, we, we know, we experience this if you've been a Christian longer than one week. There's the, there's the oldness still there, but the, there's the newness that's come too. Sometimes the old comes calling, literally. Sometimes it, the old is texting you and you need to sometimes say to it when it asks you it is I no it's it's not me anymore it's not the same there's a newness and that we experience that in Christ there's a new perspective we look at people differently we look at what it means to be a christian differently there's a newness there paul describes this newness also with a new new, new relationship with christ new relationship with the lord look at verse 18 not just a new relation new perspective on other people it's anchored primarily in this new relationship A vertical relationship with the Lord, verse 18. All this, so that that perspective, that newness of how he looks at other people, that newness of how he looks at himself as in Christ and other Christians, this comes from God. The power of all this is for who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a new relationship with the Lord. That's the power behind all this. That's the foundation. When he talks about reconciliation, it, it's like the reestablishing, it's the restoring of a broken relationship. It could be a marriage. It could be a workplace. He's talking about with the Lord. And think about this, the, the greater the relationship, the more important the relationship, the greater the need there is for reconciliation. If I have a broken relationship with the cashier at in and out right? They, they don't really give, they forget to give me my chopped chilies, right? They, they put something in there I don't really want. I mean, I want to reconcile so I can get my order correct. But when I leave In-N-Out, I may not even know that person's name. It's really not going to affect me very much unless they spit in my food and I find out later. But, you know, if I have an irreconciled relationship with the cashier In-N-Out, it doesn't affect my life dramatically. But if I have an irreconciled relationship with my brother, that affects me if I have an broken relationship with my wife, it affects me. If I have a broken relationship with my children, it affects me deeply. I carry it. I feel it. There's no more important relationship than with our creator, the one who knows our name, the one who brought us into existence. We were made to be in right relationship with the Lord. We see that. I love this. uh, my, My daughter, Malia, is reading through the Bible. And actually, I'm getting a good workout out of this too. One of her favorite things to do is open the Bible to a random place. And she has me, She reads it and she's like, where is it, bot dad? Like, testing my theological training. I think I can't, good thing I'm about 80%, 90%. I can usually get the book and chapter. I can't get the verses quite right, but she's reading through Genesis. Right? Good thing I had lots of seminary training. Um, she's testing me. But we're, we're doing that now and she's reading through Genesis. She, it's amazing. Actually, this past week, she brought her Bible. She goes to a Catholic school, so it's not as you know weird to bring, I guess, the Bible to, to school, but she brought her Bible to school and she was like reading through Genesis. And she's talking about like, she's she's learning this relationship she has with God as she's looking at the creation of Adam and Eve. Right? We were made to be in right relationship with the Lord. But our, our sin, she came to chapter three, she saw this. Our sin our self-centeredness, our desire to be in the place of God breaks that. And now we have this unresolved tension. We were made to know God, live for God, love God. And yet we, we have a tension that exists. What, that, you have some, you ever experience one small thing off in your life and then it kind of ripples through many things in your life? But think about the tension you, you have with your Creator, how it affects everything. And a little bit of that experience during my sabbatical, one of my goals was to run a lot because I'm training for another marathon. But God basically said to me, like, I need to rest my body too because my first train time I ran a marathon, I didn't experience many injuries or none, thankfully. But this time in the last two months, I've had so many injuries. I, my knees swelled up. Like, I could like push on it, it and squishy. That was interesting. And then like three weeks ago, after a great run and a great week, I wake up and like, something's really wrong with my back. And I'm like, I'm stubborn. So I just ignore it. I go four days. I can't really sleep. I'm like, ah, I'm fine. I'm like freaking out. I need to go see a chiropractor. I call Roger, but he's not there. And you know, I got to go find some random person. I don't know. I'm like, I don't want to see a chiropractor. I don't know if this is like, it's going to help me or not. But like, he's like, he touches my back. He's like, your pelvic bone's like off, like significantly, like in your muscles are like, all trying to like, like pull at it. I'm like, that's why my back hurts. Yeah, one small thing. I think it's like an inch or so off and it caused my everything in my back to like move. You have something off with your Lord. Everything is going to constrict and move to make, try and... That's why all of us have expressions of it differently, but we have, feel that, that tension, that pain, that brokenness. And it comes from being wrong with our Lord. Yet the good news is, in this passage over and over again, Declares there's good news that this tension with our Lord can be resolved. And it actually comes from His initiative. It's not coming from Him just ignoring it, though. You know how sometimes if we're trying to get off, you know, I mean, if it's not really that big of a deal, sometimes we just kind of move on, right? But God can't just move on from this because He's perfectly holy and just. He doesn't just ignore our rebellion, our sin, He initiates, though. He makes things right. He deals with the disconnect with us. And that's amazing. Consider how hard it is for people who who are at ends to reconcile today. Sometimes it even takes a third-party person, a counselor, a mediator. In the face of God, He's the wronged one. He's the offended one. And yet He initiates. Look at verse 19 and 21. Look at all the God as the subject, as the initiator of this reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross is how reconciliation happens. Jesus knew no sin. He knew no sin. He lived a perfect life. He didn't rebel against God. He, he perfectly loved God, loved neighbor. He kept the covenant and law perfectly. He did everything that was right. He had perfect obedience. And he sent this perfect person to become sin. He took, it meant in this language, he became the sin offering from the Old Testament where there's a sacrificial system where this perfect spotless lamb can stand in the place of his people. It's on the day of atonement, right? And that's how people become one with God again. That's what atonement means, to become one again, at one with God, to be reconciled. He bears the full justice of the world's sin, even though he had no sin. All the shame, all the curse, all the judgment, all the death. That's why the Holy Week looks the way it does. He bears the sins of the world in our place as our substitute. God sends his Son to be a sin offering. And so he represents us, He also is our substitute. You begin to see this if you're familiar with the prophet Isaiah, how this plays out, how God was promising this. Chapter 53, which we often read around Good Friday, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. God reconciles the world. This is a new relationship, a vertical relationship restored with God because He deals with our sin. But the good news, the, the gospel that's declared here doesn't just stop at Jesus dying on our sin. That's how we reconcile. There's more than just that. That's why I love, and if you've been in our church long enough, you know 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of my favorite verses. I come to it again and again and again. Look at the second half, and we sometimes miss the second half of verse 21. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Far too often, I think, when we hear the gospel, it's a half gospel. It's a truncated gospel. Most people hear that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins. But what most people hear when they hear that is, when he dies for the forgiveness of sins, you get a blank slate. You get a second chance for you to try all over again. But those of us who ever had that experience of trying again, know we fail again and again and again. It's infinitely because we on our own, our own broken hearts can't make that right. But here's the good news. It's, it's not just that he died for our sins. That's great. It's amazing. But it's full. It's complete. The second half of it is we also get his righteousness. He doesn't just give us a blank slate. He gives us credit of full obedience, full goodness, full righteousness. He gives us that standing. One of the things we got to do uh, during our sabbatical, we haven't got to travel internationally with our kids. Uh, We've done some, you know, West Coast vacations. We've gone to Hawaii. Um, We've never done an international trip with our children. Um, They were young and, you know, we didn't want to do that yet. And then COVID happened, Uh, but we got to go to London and in London, forgetting exactly the place. I think it's the, t- the Tower of London we were at. Um, it's all blurring together to me. Uh, but wherever the crown jewels are. And actually, I'll, I'll just make a shout out. I, I, my, my wife is an amazing planner and she has like all these amazing spreadsheets, all the places to go. So if you ever want tips on where to go and how to do things, we, I'm so glad we got to see the crown jewels when we did because we got through like pretty quickly. And then later when we were done, we saw the lines like three hours long. Like we just waited like 10 minutes, like amazing. We don't have to waste our day in line. But um, you see the crown jewels, and this is before the coronation recently, right? And so you, not all of them were there, but the majority of them were still there. And you see these ridiculous jewels and how large the diamonds are and how ornate and how beautiful they are. That, that, those things are designed, actually, if you know the symbolism of the king, uh, you have a scepter and you have this glute orb. It's like power over the world and that kind of imagery and then the crown. That's a standing, that's a, it's a status, it's an identity. When it says in verse 21, we, we get the first part, I think if you understand Christianity, that he died for our sins. I think people get that, but you have to see it's more than that. That's how scandalous the gospel actually is. It says, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's like getting the crown jewels, all of that ornate, beautiful standing, that a king has, that Jesus has. It's given to his children. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. It's removed. He sees Jesus' righteousness, his goodness. He doesn't just see your effort to try and do a better time. He sees all that perfection of Jesus. He sees all the blessings of Jesus. He sees you as in right standing, welcome, fully with status is a son, a daughter, loved and welcome. Paul, as he's describing this in the middle of this, he can't contain himself and he pleads with the Corinthians, be reconciled to God. He just kind of breaks out with this. I love how Paul, if you read his letters carefully, often he'll just kind of break out into like praise or doxology. Sometimes he will just break into like these little phrases like, be reconciled to God. And I think that's the plea he He wrote this, the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to write this in because as we read this years later, he he wants that to be the plea to the people of God hearing this, be reconciled to God. And that's the same plea I will make on behalf of this scripture and be the mouthpiece of God to you. We need to be reconciled. You need to be reconciled to God. Some of you are here and you're not yet followers of Jesus and you're here because your mom dragged you to church. (laughs) I'm thankful that you're here today, even if you're just... Giving me a little bit of tension to hear God and hope you hear God today. You love your mom enough to come to church. It's awesome. But here maybe God wants you to hear this. Right? If you're not yet right with God through his son, I, I'm willing to guess you could describe some tension you know that exists in your life. It's different for every single person, but trace that tension. Does it does it trace back just like my my little little bit of offness with my back causes everything in my body to kind of constrict. Is that tension, if you trace it back far enough, trace you back to the irreconciled relationship you have with the one who made you? That longing you feel. Maybe it's a way to draw you to hear this. Be reconciled to the God who initiates his love towards you in the giving of Jesus. Have you walked into the church today and you're not quite feeling right with God. This is paul saying this to Christians too. Be reconciled to God. This is true of us who are in Christ. I think some of us begin to like function in in bad theology in our life. We believe like Jesus died for our sins and then we believe we kind of get into heaven by our works. That that's faulty the theology that's lived out in faulty living. No. He gives he gives us his righteousness. We can't lose it. It's just like your son and daughter. If you have children. You know, even they could do horrible things and then it hurts your relationship. There's a, there's a fractured relationship there. And yet they never stop being your son or daughter. We can fracture our relationship with the Lord. We never stop. He, he's given us his inheritance. It's kept for us. He's given us status. He's given us righteousness. It, we don't lose that relationship with our Heavenly Father. But he says, be reconciled because we can fracture. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can run from God. And maybe that's what God is saying to you. If you have been running, be reconciled. His arms are not shut to you. They are always open. It's just like the prodigal son. He's waiting. He's longing. He's looking over the the hill's edge in the distance, waiting for you to return. And so maybe this is the prayer I have been praying this week is for you. Maybe you need to be reconciled with God. You're in Christ and you've been running for 20 years. And you were brought to church today because your ma, you wanted to love your mom and you showed up. And you hear this from the Lord through his word. Be reconciled to him. There's a last new aspect that we need to look at. Not just a new perspective. Not just a new relationship with the Lord. It, it gives us a new ministry. Kind of look at the same verses in a different way. Look at verse 20 again. Therefore we are ambassadors. That's the main idea here. That's the imagery for Christ making god making his appeal through us and look at verses 18 and 19 again through this lens all this is from god who through christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in christ god was reconciling the world to himself not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation so those who are in christ who have been reconciled to god it's it's automatic we're given a new ministry Everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is a follower of Jesus, has a ministry. And that ministry is a ministry of reconciliation, of declaring and working towards helping people be right with God. And that's expressed not only in words, it's also expressed, often is expressed in us extending reconciliation where it's hard in our lives. Think about Paul. He could rightly, we wouldn't fault him if, He never went to talk to the Corinthians again. That relationship was pretty bad. And yet he's initiating with these people who are rejecting him, trying to be reconciled to them. He's living this ministry out. So we all have this new ministry. Now receiving reconciliation means we're given this ministry of reconciliation, God's mission, and he's making his appeal through us. Think about the, the idea of an ambassador in in the, in a political geopolitical world ambassadors represent one country living in another country usually they may be living in and around an embassy that represents you know a little bit of a country in another land it has you know not the same laws as the land it's in but the country where it's origin and if you're an ambassador you're representing another country and he's saying we are ambassadors for Christ god making his appeal before us and through us that means if we're ambassadors This place isn't our home. When you're in Christ, you have an eternal home. You know where you're going. You know what you have forever. And that's our home. And we represent those kingdom values. So the kingdom of God that is defined by the fruit of the Spirit, that's defined by God's character, all of that, all the laws of God, the love of God, All of that is what we are to represent in this place, which is not ultimately our home. We witness to him and his kingdom, his values. And that's, that's amazing. And you think about if you got a chance to represent the United States as an ambassador, maybe at a political level, maybe just as an athlete, you know, and some people who play on behalf of a country, that's an incredible joy and privilege to represent a country to go to a place on behalf of someone else. How much more the king of the universe, the maker of all things, who chose all of his children who are in Christ to be ambassadors. He's making his appeal about his kingdom and who he is in San Francisco, in the Sunset neighborhood, through us. That's where the kingdom of God breaks through. Through you and me. The world needs peace. You know how he shows it to this place? through you and me we are in Christ. This world does need comfort. You know how he brings about his comfort? One of the main means by which he brings comfort to this place is through you and me. He, the world needs to see there is a possibility to mend what seemingly is unmendable. Well we begin to humble ourselves and reconcile, and he begins to show this God who wants to reconcile. Because we have this vertical relationship with the Lord, restored and and given to us by grace, by His Son Jesus, we now extend that horizontally with those around us. There's layers to this. I want to kind of apply this a little bit uh, to us. Let's start, you know, from the inside out. This, This should happen in the church. Sadly, if you ask people who don't go to church anymore and they used to go to church, often one of the main reasons they don't go to church is other people, right? Um, I've heard other people describe, you know, as pastors and ministers, um, you know, some some version of this, but they say something like, you know, I would love the church except for the people. <laughs> because once you actually stay in the church for long, if, if you stay in the church long enough and, and you actually try and be present and vulnerable and you open yourself to other people in the church, you're going to get hurt. It's just going to happen. In fact, if you never get hurt in church, you probably were never in church. Because once you get deep enough with people, there's going to be some misunderstanding, some hurt, because our old self still kind of creeps in at times. This happens in the church. At Corinth, they had a really bad relationship. Uh, they're accusing of Paul of things. They have controversies. They have incredible sin existing in their midst. They have a tough time, and he's seeking their reconciliation. And so here's my call to you maybe the be reconciled to God the part that maybe some of us need to hear is yes you you have dealt with God but that that part that needs to flow from that is reconcile with other brothers and sisters in the church I, I got together with some pastors in Houston was about two weeks ago um, they're pastors of Chinese heritage churches churches that were started by Chinese immigrants usually and now we're trying to navigate the next season of what that looks like as you know, immigration things change and generations change. And all of us share stories where um, you know, there's things that are that are great in church and things that are hard, and often I the same thing happens in all the stories. It's always the broken relationships that are hardest. And maybe what we need to see and hear and experience in our church when we hear be reconciled to God is there's some relationship that exists. In our church community where now you just come to church and you don't look them in the eye you just try and avoid them as much as possible but like you actually change services so you don't have to run of that person you just walk right on by them and maybe that the reconciliation needs to happen in our church i mean there's going to be messiness if we're authentic in our community right here's what happens this is sadly true of many churches and many christians they don't want that. And so what they do is they just move from one place to the next because they experience the smallest bit of you know discomfort or even not even pain and hurt yet, but they just move to the next church, the next small groups, the next place, and never go deep enough. But think about this if we are proclaiming a God who can reconcile the world to himself, and we cannot reconcile with one another. What does that do to our message and our life and our community? Maybe where the world doesn't believe that we have a God who reconciled because we can reconcile. So our be reconciled to God, maybe it needs to be expressed with one another. It also needs to extend to the world, the city. We we're announcing there's reconciliation possible. Think about San Francisco, how divided it is. The race, economics, opportunity. Like think about all the division that exists. We have a chance as ambassadors to show this city what the kingdom of God looks like. This is my prayer. This is one of the things I was praying for over my sabbatical. Something I've been sharing with our leaders for a while now. my hope, my desire as God works on us and as we draw near to Jesus, that's what I want most, but I pray that God would do something that we could only explain by his work in our midst. Because I would love to see Us grow in such a way that we become weird, like we become unexplainable. Like right now, if if most people come to Sunset Church, we're we're very easily explainable for the most part, right? We were a church that was planted out of Chinatown, so primarily we're going to be you know Chinese American because we had that body that started this church. We're also in a neighborhood that's about thirty percent Chinese American, so that kind of makes sense. Also. You know, now we're geographically centered here. And so people are going to generally look like the people who live in the Sunset neighborhood. We're very explainable to the world. Like if someone came to our church community, we wouldn't be that surprising to most people, whether they're Christians or not. It makes sense to them. I pray we become unexplainable because reconciliation is unexplainable. How does God, the God who's wronged, reconcile with people? That's amazing. That's scandalous. And if that's true of Christians, us, and it grows in us, it should be more true in our community. We're unexplainable. Because what happens in Ephesians chapter two, the barrier of division is gone. We're called to re-reconcile with our city. And so we should begin to see over time, over years, as Jesus is more and more the center of our church, not our preferences, not our comforts, not our culture, then we see socioeconomic differences. It's very easy to hang out with people in the same tax bracket as you. In fact, that's just one of the things I often talk with other pastors in San Francisco. Some people have, you know, we have like ethnic diversity in some of the churches in San Francisco. But most of us agree, we don't really have unexplainable diversity. Because even when there's, un, you know, differences of ethnicities, they're all the same tax bracket. Because it's very easy to hang out with people in the same tax bracket as you. Because then you have the same financial standing. You can go to the same restaurants. You can hang out together. You can invite each other's home. It doesn't feel that strange. You have the same things in your house. You have the same soap. You have the same. Your kids go to the same school, right? Yep, those things that make it very comfortable. You go to someone's house and it's dramatic, or they don't have a house. What, do, what does that look like? See, it's, it's very natural to go to the flow, go with the flow, and just—it's a cultural. It's, it's just what the world does. We are a very explainable group. But we're called to a community that's reconciled by God. We have this ministry of reconciliation. We should be growing over time in our unexplainableness because we begin to see the only thing that could bring these people together has to be something greater than what's superficial and seen here. It has to be something else. And the answer is Jesus. We're looking, as I look at the news this time in sabbatical, San Francisco, this doom loop, people talking about brokenness all over the that, that exists, there are things there. And yet I also, as I think about this text, especially see that there's a newness that can happen. We're a city we have on a hill if we're in Christ. We can shine the kingdom ethics here. We can shine kingdom values. We can become something that only is explainable by Jesus. And that brings not just newness to us, it brings the kind of newness that this city really needs. Would you pray for that in your life, in our church, in this city, in the world? Let's pray together. Father, we can read that we are new creations and believe it, intellectually agree, and yet not experience the newness that the Holy Spirit gives to us in Christ. I pray that your Holy Spirit would renew us experience to experience that, that there be a, a renewed joy, a renewed peace, a renewed comfort, a renewed worship of you. Father, I pray for the various places where reconciliation is needed in our church, I pray that that would be true, that there would be humility to seek those we've wronged. I pray that especially true of our elders, our pastors, our leaders, our staff. There's some things maybe we're, we're conscious of that we're hesitant to pursue because we're afraid or maybe too much time has passed, whatever it is, Lord, would you humble us? Father, also help us to have humility. Maybe there's things we're unaware of. Hurts, wrongs, irreconcilable relationships. We don't even know. And when those people have the boldness and the humility to come to us, may we hear, may we listen, may we pursue reconciliation. I pray that that would happen more and more in our church, Lord. I pray, Lord, would you help us to become an unexplainable kind of community that has experienced an unexplainable reconciliation with the Lord. Would you help us to grow in openness to others who are different than us. May we heed this call from your word to to live out a community that's one people in Christ that breaks down dividing walls. May that be true of us, Lord. May your spirit make that true of us. We humbly ask for that and long for that and submit to that, Lord, as we long to be a city on a hill. We long to be ambassadors here in San Francisco declaring your goodness, your love, your grace.